you can't print yourself to prosperity and you actually need to do some work to earn money. That's what money is. It, it's energy that you get paid uh, for your work energy. You get monetary energy. Uh, that monetary energy is better stored in Bitcoin than it is in fiat currency. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast. I am your host, Eric Rao. Today we have another wonderful guest from the Great White North, Greg Foss. Greg worked for over 30 years in the credit market, and we have a wonderful conversation covering a variety of topics regarding working in credit, the reason Bitcoin excites him, the 2008 great financial crisis, the current value he sees in Bitcoin, the consumption of energy and how it will help promote growth, money printing and the effects it has on an economy, and much more. Sit back and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the eighth episode of the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast. I'm excited to announce that we have Mr. Greg Foss. He has a long career in the credit market, and he is the king of rounding errors. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, really appreciate you having me. Appreciate you being willing to jump on um, in such short notice, and appreciate that, you know, your willingness to give back and help teach some people about the community. So um, if you could just give the listener a little bit of background on yourself, and we can get started from there. Sure. Um, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Montreal uh, and I attended McGill University, uh, hometown university. Um, like yourself, we talked a little bit. I went to school to play sports, but I actually took engineering. Um, and after the first week of my engineering school, I realized I really didn't want to become an engineer, but I loved the mathematics side of it. And I figured I could always switch from engineering to business, but you can't actually go in the other direction. Uh, you can't go from business uh, and say, oh, you know, I, I, I want to be an engineer. You, you, you can start school again, but uh, it's pretty tough. Um, so ideally, uh, I was planning fairly early on that I was going to try and uh, achieve an MBA. And uh, I was lucky as a Canadian, I got accepted to a, an Ivy League school in the U.S., Cornell that I'd never would have gotten into uh, as an American because while my marks were pretty good, I did not have any business work experience, but they were trying to build an international business school. So they figured some clown from Canada was, you know, would be okay as a, a candidate to help them round out their, uh, their international business school. So down to Cornell, I went and uh, essentially after two years, I uh, graduated with a finance uh a uh, pretty decent understanding of finance, nothing special. Uh, but I came back and essentially uh, I came back to Canada to work in the credit markets in the finance industry. And I termed myself a financial engineer. So that was in 1986. I graduated from McGill. I had never used a personal computer because they didn't exist. So no laughing out there, but I am 57 years old. And uh, you got to understand that uh, old men like I, like me uh, don't quite appreciate all the young uh, uh, new new platforms that are out there. Uh, an iPhone is uh, it, it, I understand the power of it, but I, I didn't grow up with it in my hand. Uh, and, and this is changing the world. Um, Twitter. Uh, listen, uh, 
if you would have told me I were ever would have had some Twitter followers like I do now, I would have said you're out of your mind, but it's a beautiful platform. So here I am. Uh, I spent 30 years, three zero years trading credit. I've worked on both the sell side. When I say sell side, that means I've worked for investment banks. Uh, being a trader on behalf of the bank, I would use the bank's capital to facilitate liquid markets. Obviously, we try and make a profit on our trades. Uh, and then I graduated to the buy side and I worked at uh, two different credit focused hedge funds. Uh, so I lived through credit events like uh, 1998, which was long term capital management. I lived through 2008, obviously, the great financial crisis. And, uh, and then most recently, the COVID uh, crisis. And all of them have very uh, distinct similarities. Uh, the panic always starts in the credit markets. People need to understand that credit is far more important than equities. Although everyone always listens to CNBC only to listen to the talking heads talk about equities. They very rarely talk about the credit markets, except for the US Treasury market. They never really rec uh, talk about high yield or junk bonds. And that's where I made my living in the junk bond market. I was based in Canada. I did work in New York on occasions, uh, but uh, generally everything I did, didn't matter where you're based, uh, everything trades through New York. So uh, in high yield credit anyway. And so, uh, yeah, I was a 30 year trader with, uh, with counterparties basically out of New York. So all the biggest investment banks uh, I, I would trade with, I've traded pretty well every single credit product that exists uh, in a hedge fund. You're able to uh, trade equities against your debt position. That's a pretty standard pocket trade. And, uh, you know, you realize just how important the credit markets are and how out of touch the equity markets are in various times with the what I call the gurgling of the financial system, the plumbing of the financial system, which is always in the credit markets. So that's what I bring to the table is 30 years of mistakes, but uh, not necessarily mistakes that killed me. All right. And that's very important to understand. If you stick to outdated investment theses or uh, investment beliefs, you're guaranteed to get carried out. The market will essentially remain in your mind irrational, but maybe the market's correct and you're the one that's irrational. So you always need to evaluate your, your risk uh, thesis. You have to continually, continually read research that is counter to your opinion. Okay, that's really important for your listeners. Uh, don't look for confirmation bias. Don't look for research that tells you how smart you are because you own Google stock. Look for research that tells you you're an idiot if you own Google stock, if you're long, because that will tell you, well, the guy writing the article is either wrong or, you know, he has some good points and maybe I better hedge against that. Right. So my whole life has been spent, um, uh, basically trying to understand and protect myself in theories that are not uh, uh, widely accepted because the world is always changing. And in 2016, I found Bitcoin, um, which I believe is the, uh, the most beautiful technological, uh, technological innovation that I've ever seen. Uh, you need to look at tradeblock.com. You need to see the Bitcoin 
blockchain in action. It's an absolute thing of beauty from an engineer's perspective. You need to pick up a wallet. You need to transfer money to your best friend, whether it's $20 worth of Bitcoin and see how it gets settled in 10 minutes without any counterparty or excuse me, without any intermediary. Um, again, you can send it to your friend or you can send it around the world. It doesn't matter. So I've sent money to uh, New Zealand, to an indigenous tribe in New Zealand. Uh, and if you've ever tried to send an international money transfer, you've, you, you'll understand how uh, impossible it is to do that transaction. It's settled in 10 minutes. You can't even do it within one week uh, using the legacy financial system. So that's, that's the, the use case of it. And then I believe Bitcoin is the anti-fiat and uh, that in that light, you need to own Bitcoin. Uh, you know, most of your listeners will probably be in the United States, but let me just tell you, there's 180 countries in the world whose fiat regularly collapses, the Venezuelas, Arge Argentinas of the world. Uh, and that's outside of our privileged, uh, you know, life that we have in, as a G7 country. So I believe Bitcoin is default insurance on a basket of fiat currencies. I've written a paper to uh, follow that up and I've put an intrinsic value on Bitcoin using that methodology. So I, I've, I've given you a pretty big data dump and I don't want to scare any of your listeners. Um, there's just 30 years of experience that uh, I found Bitcoin. I believe it's the perfect hedge for the uh, asinine uh, fiscal and monetary policies that our governments are currently undergoing. Um, having traded credit for 30 years, I can tell you that because uh, they just take it for granted that the US will uh, always be able to roll over their debt. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And all you need to do is think of a different country like Argentina or Brazil. Because when I graduated in 1988 from Cornell University, Brazil, Mexico, and all South American countries had defaulted on their debt. And the bank that I went to work for in Canada, Canada's largest financial institution, actually was insolvent if you had marked down to market the value of the loans that they had made to those countries. Now, what does that mean? Very simply, if they had to take about a 75 cent on the dollar haircut on the loans they'd made, uh, they would have book, they would have uh, used up the book value of their equity, equity being the risk absorbing capital in the in the banking system, it would have been vaporized, you would have had a net net book value of equity value for Canada's large, largest financial institution. That's not a good thing. But it was no different than Chase Manhattan, Manufacturers Hanover, all the US money center banks that have since merged or uh, none of them have disappeared, they all merged. Uh, so it's now JP Morgan Chase, for example. Listen, every single money center bank in New York was in the same position. And that's the danger of the financial system we live in. And that's why I love Bitcoin. Thanks for the background there. Um, a, lot of, a lot of pieces you covered. First thing I want to start off with is what you just talked about. So when you got into Canada's largest bank um, coming out of Cornell, you noticed it was insolvent. So what did you start doing at that point in time? And what were you guys able to do to get yourself out of that hole? Because um, clearly Canada hasn't defaulted. Um, so so what, what happened since then to- it's a Great question. That? So so basically at the time, 
given that the global banking financial system was in the same uh, same boat, and the most hilarious thing was none of the equity analysts had any clue, right? So the equity analysts are like, oh, you still got to own Royal Bank of Canada. It's got a really nice dividend yield. These guys are knuckleheads, okay? Don't ever listen to an equity analyst that doesn't understand debt markets, okay? So if you're invested in a in a the equity of a company and you don't know what the credit rating of that company is and what price their debt trades at, you haven't done your due diligence. And I'm going to venture that nine out of 10 people that are invested in equities have no clue what I just said. Okay. But given that debt is a prior claim on the value of a company, then the equity, unless the debt's worth 100% of the loan or the value that, uh, that was invested, the equities were zero. So never forget that, okay? Equity is a subordinate claim to the debt. And if you don't know where the prior claim is trading and what price it's trading at, and whether it's in any sort of distressed scenario or whatever, you have not done your homework. And I guarantee all those people buying Hertz equity in the last year, they had no clue where the bonds were trading. The risk-adjusted trade was within the, was in the bonds. Now, the equity did turn out well, but that was going to the craps casino, guys. And uh, listen, I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah, okay, some people made money on the equity. You were in the wrong part of the capital structure. Uh, so anyway, back to the banks. 1988, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady devised a brilliant plan where he turned the defaulted debt from a five-year obligation into a 33-year obligation backed by zero-coupon U.S. bonds, which meant that over 30 years, the value of the debt would, in fact, accrete to 100 cents on the dollar just because of the zero-coupon component of the debt. Brilliant solution. What did it, uh, what did it uh, do? It meant that the banks did not have to write down their loans to market. Okay, it's an accounting gimmick. And I'm like, this is such garbage. I'm like, why is this? Why do people deposit their money in banks that are regularly insolvent? And the reality is, the reality is they do it because there's an implied backstop. And that, that bark was the perfect, the perfect bark, okay? Because Roof is right, okay? It's a dog's breakfast. If the banks did not have the implied backstop, who would deposit their money in a bank? Okay, it's, it's, it's just, you got to understand how banking works. And it's just dangerous, but that's the capitalist system. As, Ford, as Henry Ford said somewhere around 1920, he said, if the American population understood how the banking system really worked, there'd be a revolution overnight. So why are the banks backstopped by the governments? How do the governments backstop them? By being able to print money. Well, my contention is that it's the fiat system that is the Ponzi, not the Bitcoin system, which people tend to say, oh, my God, it's all a Ponzi. Well, that's intellectual laziness. You need to peel away the layers of the onion to understand how beautiful Bitcoin actually is as an invention and as a hedge to the legacy financial system. Perfect. So you saw... You saw the writing on the wall early on in your career that the banks were broken. The system was kind of broken. It's, it's, it's not broken as much as you, you, you need to understand the risks. And people just don't understand it. They take it at face value that the government will bail out the banks. The government has to bail out the banks because, again, if they don't, they're just left with a mess that doesn't work. So, so when you saw this, did you 
find yourself looking for a, an out? Did you find yourself no. looking for gold? I, I didn't become a gold bug. I, 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 I own gold. I just said, this is the, this is weird, but it is what it is. Right. And then I became a credit trader and I started trading high yield bonds. And I started saying, wow, my God, if I, I got way bigger problems, uh, if high yield bonds don't pay down, if the car, you know, if the government doesn't pay down, then, then that's a real, real problem, you know? So it, it's all a question of, uh, of layers. Everything trades off the price of U.S. Treasury debt. And then incremental levels of risk are priced higher in a credit spread. That's how investors get rewarded for the incremental risk they're taking. But I didn't question the system. I, I didn't like it. I didn't question it. I wasn't running out and telling people that banks are, uh, you know, start a, a run on a bank because I, I worked for one. I didn't want to tell people that my institution was, uh, was uh, you know, faulty. Uh, but then in 2016, when essentially I'd retired from the hedge fund business and I was introduced to Bitcoin, I'm like, wow, I, I've actually been looking for this for 30 years. Okay. At the time, it was closer to 20. And I guess like 2016, I started in 88. So what is that? Like 28 years? I've been looking for it for 28 years. And, uh, and, and I finally found it. And I go, oh, my God. And it just meant so much to me. Versus a regular, someone, I, I'm going to say a regular person, far be it from me being regular, but like it meant so much to me for, uh, from a credit perspective, someone who's spent their whole career in credit. I really think Bitcoin gets understood uh, very easily by people who are good at mathematics and people who are good at mathematics that go into trading to go into the income rather than uh, rather than equity trading and fixed income, it's all mathematics. Uh, it's a, a contract. So the cash flows are defined. If you break the contract, yeah, it's an event of default, but it's not hairy fairy equity shit where equities grow to the moon. And, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta understand 20 years out, like, come on guys. I mean, there's just a big difference between equity investors and debt investors. That's all I'm saying. Definitely makes sense. So before we dive like deep into the Bitcoin side, fast forward 30 years, and or actually we could probably stop at 20 and then 30. Okay. What did you see go on in 2008 um, oh, during the financial crisis? Yeah, scariest time of my life. Um, so I was working at a hedge fund. Uh, uh, we were we were lucky. Okay, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. We had raised our capital and we had what's called a gate, um, a two-year lockup on the capital. Uh, we were lucky because while we did really well, and we actually, you know, made quite a bit of money during that crisis. Our investors were still not allowed to redeem uh, their money, uh, and it provided us a certainty of uh, of an investment horizon. Because one of the crazy things that happened is if you're, and, and this happened at a prior hedge fund I was working at, we were knocking the cover off the ball at this other hedge fund, but we were getting redeemed at various periods of our of our life because. If a fund of funds invests in, let's say, 10 different hedge funds, if eight of those other hedge funds are not doing well, investors tend to want to sell their winners. So sometimes you get redeemed even if you're doing well. The lucky thing was in, in 2008 for us is uh, we had the lock, uh, the lockup or the, the gate. Um, it wasn't gated per se. It was just locked up. A gate happens when the fund decides that they're going to gate it. 
meaning, oh, sorry, investors, we're not giving you your money back, even if you want it. Okay. And that's what happened to a lot of hedge funds in 2008. They were being redeemed so much that they actually said, okay, we're gating our fund, meaning, Hey, thanks for giving us your money. No, you're not getting it back. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it, it was so ugly. Okay. So 2008 was so eye opening. As I mentioned to you, I'd lived through uh, the long-term uh, capital LTCM debacle in 1998, but uh 2008 was just from a different uh, uh, level of uh, extreme, uh, absolute leverage unwind and crazy stuff happening that you never in your life thought was going to happen. And in March of 2009, when the S&P hit around 666 points, um, look, there were days I was certain it was over. Uh, Lehman had filed for bankruptcy. Bear Stearns had gotten taken over at two bucks a share, but nothing had gotten fixed. And confidence basically was out of the system. Uh, but then some programs and, you know, the Fed did the right thing. These troubled asset relief, uh, the TARP programs and things like that, over time, allowed confidence to return to the system because that's all it ever is, is a, is a question of confidence in the, in the stability of the system. And so what led the S&P to stabilize was actually stabilization in the credit markets. The high yield market had stabilized a long time before the, the equity markets had. Uh, so you see these things coming and uh, it's always led by the credit markets, either in uh, recovery or in, um, you know, when the warning signals are, uh, are flashing, it's always in the credit markets. So were you able to see any warning signals coming before 2008? And were you guys able yeah, to act oh, yeah. on that? Yeah, we did because, uh, so I don't know if you guys remember, there was a, uh, a famous summer uh, <coughs> CNBC, Jim Cramer, they called it the rant, where Jim Cramer uh, was with Aaron, Aaron something, Aaron, she, she works on CNN now or one of the other major news net networks, but she, she was there and Ask Kramer, uh, what's going on in the markets? And he gets up there and he goes, they have no idea how bad it is there. I'm not sure if you're too young to remember that rant, but you got to look up on it, look it up on, uh, on video. I've, I attached it to a link in the paper that I wrote and, and it just, it brought back so many memories. So this was in 2007, there was a precursor to the credit crisis in the U S it happened in Canada and it was actually due to, uh, subprime mortgage exposure in the United States that Canadian institutions had uh, had unknowingly almost gotten themselves exposed to. And when they realized they had subprime mortgage exposure, they panicked and stopped, absolutely shut down that particular component of the market. And in my opinion, it was the precursor to the U.S. credit crisis because Canadians typically act even more irrationally than U.S. guys do half the time in, when it comes to credit. And they just stopped rolling over their paper in this, in this product. And it doesn't sound like a big number in today's uh, crazy world, but 32 billion of it froze overnight in Canada. And this was even before Jim Cramer got up there and did his rant on TV about the Fred has no idea what they're doing. So what happened in equity markets? He does that thing in September, I think it was, the Fed comes out and cuts rates again. And equity markets rallied to all-time highs 
in 2007 and the credit markets were still like, dudes, do you not understand what's going on? Like you guys are knuckleheads. And sure enough, uh, you know, 2007 turned into 2008 and then equity markets hit all time lows in 2000, not all time lows, but uh, cycle lows in 2009. So again, the equity markets were screaming. Uh, we were able to position ourselves, um, you know, um, sometimes you're good and sometimes you're lucky. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, there's an old expression, uh, uh, better lucky than good. Uh, we, we skated through it. Um, skating is a, the wrong terminology. We survived it and we did make money um, and uh, came out of it uh, with what turned out to be the best uh, trade I've ever experienced. And it was based on that structure that in 2007 stopped uh, functioning. We accumulated a massive position in it at about, you know, between 20 and 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, and we were the biggest buyer in Canada by far. Uh, other U.S. hedge funds had come in and started picking off Canadians. But we were the largest Canadian buyer. And the, 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 the structure got restructured, okay? So it was a credit structure that went through a restructuring and I ended up being worth 100 cents on the dollar. So, you know, we, we had purchased a lot of this below 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, we were always in the market. And um, yeah, our, our unit holders uh, were very pleased with the performance of our funds and rightly so. It was at the time, I termed it the best trade I'd ever seen, risk adjusted, because if that structure did not mature, I mean, we had so much big problems in the uh, in, in the equity markets and everywhere else. I said, it's got to mature because, you know, the biggest exposures in that structure were names like Hewlett Packard. And if Hewlett Packard went bankrupt, I mean, it would just be a cascade of contagions. So we were able to hedge the various names at, at different prices. And I'm not going to say it was exciting, Eric. It was, it's never exciting. And, you know, you go to work and you're like, I don't want the world to end, but it sure feels like it is about to, you know? So that was 2016. And uh, I said, okay, done. I'm, I'm 50, whatever I was at that time. So 53. And I said, that's good. I've had a pretty, pretty cool career. Um, and I didn't make a ton of money, but I was happy with the uh, way that I, manage the risks that were presented to me. Um, and, uh, and that's what it's always all about is, uh, is always looking at probabilities and understanding the different risks and returns that are available. So I decided I was just gonna, I don't even know what I really wanted to do. But then I found Bitcoin. And then I said, Oh, I found my next passion and my next, uh, my next project. So for the last five years, I've been learning about Bitcoin. Very nice. It's cool to see that you guys were able to obviously not cool that the it happened in you know the financial crisis but cool to see that because we're able to recognize the writing on the wall and make some make some decisions that protected you and your investors um in order to help navigate the times because obviously it was very uncertain and then like you said people are trying to sell their winners rather than press oh, their yeah. winners oh yeah like it's no it's no fun when people want to redeem you just because they they have no confidence in anything going on right and and that's what happens it's a a crisis of confidence in the system definitely it, you know like you said it has a cascading effect yeah. um, in, in more ways than one and then people wanting to redeem makes the the numbers drop and people have to sell correct and then it just fur further purports that um at a point so yeah absolutely so then fast forward to last year, 
um, you know, the COVID, the COVID crisis coming up um, and you're not actively in a fund any longer. Um, if, if I understand it's, it's correctly. In, well, yeah, so correct. So here's what I know. Um, I still am in the markets because I'm managing my money. I don't have, a, you know, I don't have family office amount of money, but I have a, a portfolio that I've accumulated over the years. Uh, but what I did do is I was a founding shareholder of a Bitcoin company in Canada that uh, brought the first exchange listed closed end Bitcoin fund to a registered stock exchange in North America. So if you're, any of your listeners are f- familiar with the symbol GBTC, which is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, it's a closed end vehicle. It's actually huge uh, in terms of market cap, but it trades on the pink sheets. It, it's not a regulated exchange. We brought this, the equivalent structure to Canada that trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange, a very, very big innovation. It wasn't easy. Um, we had to take the Ontario Securities Commission to court, literally, to, to allow us the right to issue this. But then the good thing is it became the precursor to a really quite exciting exchange traded ETF. That's the difference between a closed end fund and an ETF. Uh, We have multiple Bitcoin ETFs in Canada now, and the US still can't get their head around it. And then that's sort of neat as a Canadian that, uh, that we've been leading the charge on that side. So not only did Canada launch the first exchange traded fund ever, many, uh, perhaps a couple of decades ago, but we also beat uh, the other markets to uh, a, a digital asset exchange traded fund. So kudos to Canada. Uh, I'll call out my, uh, the CIO, a kid that I'd worked with uh, many years on the, on both the buy and the sell side. So we were trading partners. His name is Sean Cumby and he's, he went, he took the OSC to task and the OSC uh, caved and said, you know what, all your arguments are correct. Uh, we deserve to have a closed end Bitcoin fund. And luckily it got it launched right around the time that COVID just went crazy, meaning, you know, all the, the contagion in the markets, but it turned out to be a beautiful time to get exposure to Bitcoin because the price of Bitcoin went from what, something like 4,000 bucks to wherever it's trading today, 40,000 bucks, you know, um, that was in 2019. So that fund now manages billions of dollars of, uh, of Bitcoin on behalf of Canadians. And they're the beneficiary of having uh, access to that uh, asset class. That's wonderful. Good work on that. And, you know, thank you for all I did is put my thanks. All I did is put my money in. I I, I let the young kids do the work or the smart people. Um, And uh, and yeah, again, so calling out Sean Cumby, it was a company called 3IQ and uh, proud to have been able to be a part of bringing that to Canadians. Um, and I'm hoping that the U S gets their, uh, their, their act together and, uh, allows for the issuance of a Bitcoin ETF in the U S. Um, it's an important component of a fully hedged, uh, portfolio against, you know, the, the evils of, uh, leverage, the, the reality that fiat money is a hundred percent certain to debase, it's only mathematics. So yeah, you need, as Paul Tudor Jones said on CNBC this morning, I'm not sure if you saw that, but you know, he owns 5% of Bitcoin and he goes, I own 5% of gold. I own 5% of, uh, 
of cash. What was his other 5%? He had four buckets that he had 5%. And then he goes, and I'm not even considering the other 80%. I'll figure out what the other 80%, uh, what I do with the other 80% when I see what the Fed does this Wednesday. So, you know, you have some pretty smart people involved in Bitcoin. Uh, generally, I'll come back to this. People who dis Bitcoin at the outset have not done their homework. They tend to be intellectually lazy or even worse, conflicted. They're either running a gold fund like Peter Schiff, and therefore he, no matter what, Peter Schiff will never admit that Bitcoin's way better than gold. Um, but maybe he's too smart and, you know, the fox is in the hen house on that one. Uh, but then there's other people that just dismiss it <clears throat> with intellectual lazy uh, arguments like it's a Ponzi uh, you know, or it uses too much energy or, you know, you, you've heard all of the, uh, the excuses, uh, it tends to be people like Warren Buffett, who's, you know, quite honestly, Warren, you know, uh, he, he's gotten technology wrong his entire career. So why go to a guy like Warren Buffett on something like technology? Uh, but people do. And, uh, all I say is I'm not a hundred percent certain with how things will come, uh, will unfold, but I do know that it's a probability distribution and I've never seen a better trade in my entire career. So whereas the last trade was the structured credit product, Bitcoin's a better trade than that on a risk adjusted basis. It's pretty interesting to think about like how well you guys did on the, the last one and then this one could be better. Um, I actually, when Bitcoin crashed down to, you know, about 30, 32,000 last couple of weeks. Okay. I, I tweeted that out that it crashed. It crashed oh, no. down to thirty-two thousand. <laughs> crashed down. Um, I, I tweeted out that this is the best best risk adjusted buying opportunity that we'll ever have. I mean, okay. because at that point, every I mean, in my in my opportunity or in my opinion, um, because we've got companies coming in. That was even oh, yeah. before Attaboy. the news of oh, yeah. El Salvador, oh, man. Um, that, who's that's adopted the... it, and so it's pretty crazy the amount of momentum that we have right now and it's still only at 40,000. Okay guys, right look, it, it's still a rounding error. Um, I got involved in Bitcoin at under a thousand bucks and it's actually a better investment now at this price than it was when I got involved because just things are, it's five years older. Uh, more things have happened. Taproot um, uh, is activated. Uh, El Salvador is in there. Michael Saylor is the absolutely the most brilliant uh, uh, engineer that I've ever uh, heard speak. I embrace all his principles about conservation of energy. The, this is the most, the purest form of monetary energy ever created. So uh, yeah, it's actually better now, even though the price is higher, it's a better risk adjusted trade now than it was uh, five years ago when I found it for the first time. Uh, well, not found it for the first time, but found it and then went down the proverbial rabbit hole, which is uh, studying it understanding the beauty of some of the intricacies of it. It's, it's really, it's really an unbelievable invention. And I believe it's, uh, it, it gives hope for my three kids. Cause if we had to rely on the legacy financial system and the fiat money to uh, store our value, well, we're in big trouble. Definitely agree with that there. Um, so you just touched on a few things with energy. Um, so if you could, you know, energy FUD's a big thing going on right now okay. in the environment. If you could, you know, kind of dive into that and what you see with the energy uses surrounding Bitcoin and what you think of that argument, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. So, uh, so first of all, I like to think a lot of people think of Bitcoin as digital gold. I like to think of it as what Michael Saylor says, that it's actually digital energy. And as an engineer, that appeals to me. The first law of thermodynamics is conservation of energy. 
Um, and uh, so what is uh, proof of work? Well, proof of work is the miners that, uh, that solve the difficulty, or excuse me, they, they solve the, um, the, basically the pinging. They, they, they're active on the system so that their presence allows for a, a block to be rewarded. And you need that block to, uh, that award to, to collect your fees for, for the proof of work. So you need proof of work to secure the system. All right, that's what a decentralized system requires. And when you're doing proof of work, you need energy because work is energy. And Bitcoin does use energy. Again, it secures the network. Uh, but how much energy does it really use? Here are the facts. Bitcoin uses about one-tenth of 1% 1 of the energy consumed globally each year. Okay? So... Perhaps we should focus on the other 99.9% of the energy that's being used rather than calling out Bitcoin as being wasteful or using more energy than small countries. Well, I'll, I'll admit, okay, maybe it does use more energy than a small company, but country, but no disrespect to that small country. It's, it's actually more important than that small country as well. Okay. And one-tenth of 1%, 1 ladies and gentlemen, that's all it uses. Yet we got these fudsters. We got Senator Warren, who's you know clearly failed mathematics. We got all these guys that just jump on this energy bandwagon, this ESG narrative, without considering the actual value that Bitcoin brings to the energy ecosystem. So I could expand on that a little bit if you want. Uh, it, it involves a little bit of engineering, uh, but I'll just tell you that Bitcoin being part of the energy ecosystem is actually very valuable. It consumes energy that otherwise would be wasted, uh, whether that's due to a turbine that's turning on a hydroelectric dam because the water doesn't stop based on the load that the, that the grid is asking for. Uh, that turbine is turning. And if there's no toasters and hair dryers that are plugged in to use that energy, it, it gets wasted. So you might as well mine Bitcoin using that energy and create a revenue stream that otherwise would not be used, right? And, um, you know, it stabilizes the grid in, in times when it's from the grid, but if it can be interrupted because the, the grid has more power demand than usual, so they turn off the Bitcoin miner. How about, though, if the Bitcoin miner is actually using an energy source that has not been attached to the grid? So the company I'm involved with, uh, we, we basically have mobile jet turbine engines, okay, generators, which are effectively a jet engine on the back of a trailer truck that we can wheel into a oil field that is flaring natural gas. So you've seen pictures of oil fields that have the, the, the pump jack going up and down. And then in the background, you'll see this, you know, a tower with flames coming out of the top of it. Well, that stuff is being vented or burned into the atmosphere. And it hurts the atmosphere. It creates carbon dioxide, acid rain. If it's not burned, it's methane and it goes up in uh, uh, like cow farts, it, uh, it destroys the ozone. So they're burning it. Well, if we go in there and we're able to use that energy and run it through an, a jet turbine engine and collect uh, or generate electricity that's not on the grid, that uh, generates the power that you mine Bitcoin with, 
Um, imagine if we're able to sell that power back to the grid when the grid needs it. It's called peaking. And if Texas had these peakers going during the last ice storm, they wouldn't have experienced rolling brownouts. They wouldn't have experienced people freezing to death in their house uh, that they did. Uh, so Bitcoin in that case, rather than mining the Bitcoin, you flip the switch, you're feeding the power back into the energy grid. So it's just so many applications from an engineering perspective. For that 10 basis points, once again, that 0.1% of the world's energy that Bitcoin is using, it's a non-argument. It's a non-argument. It's a fudster, promo, ESG, I love the environment garbage while these people are driving around in their electronic vehicles. They're being charged using electrons generated at the coal plants that they're so advocate against. Oh my God, it's a coal-fired electric plant, but I have a Tesla. And those Teslas are so smart. They don't take electrons from coal-fired plants. They only take it from the wind farms. Come on, guys, you don't understand it engineering, if you think that your electronic vehicle is actually environmentally friendly, okay? Such garbage. So you say that about electric vehicles. Um, is there something that like, do we know about how much electricity or I mean, not electricity, how much energy it takes to produce electric vehicles and turbines, anything like that? Yeah, um, here's a great argument. Like just go into the uh, 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 wind turbine. To begin with, wind turbine generation is generally not productive because they have to be placed in the proper wind fields where the wind blows consistently at a steady rate, not gusting winds. It's got to be like a beautiful 18 knot wind. Um, first of all, those turbines are made with steel and fiberglass. Okay. The steel is tons and tons of steel that is a pretty energy intensive process to get steel, making steel. You need iron ore and coking coal, and there's a lot of heat that's required. And if you actually ran the math on the amount of steel that goes into those wind turbines in terms of the energy required versus how much energy that turbine produces over its life, very few of those turbines actually ever make as much energy as was required to build them using steel. And take it one step further, the fiberglass um, wind vanes are almost impossible to decompose. So you put those in a landfill and they're there for hundreds of years. Okay, but don't worry, it's, it's environment, it's green, it's green. No, 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 it's not that green. It's just that you've been fed a lot of garbage. And then secondly, it costs a lot of money to produce wind electricity versus natural gas and other forms of electricity. So, you know, you can fire holes in a lot of different places, but uh, wind energy is not going to solve our problems. Solar energy is very, uh, you know, is very promising. But if they're if the solar panels are made in uh, uh, basically work camps in, in China, is that really that environmentally friendly? And then, by the way, a um, a, a geo, uh, uh, sorry, a hydroelectric project that floods out thousands and thousands of acres of indigenous Canadian land in Northern Ontario. Is that really that green? You know, my business partner is a hundred percent indigenous Canadian. Um, if you asked his people, if they thought a hydroelectric dam was green energy, I guarantee you they'd say, oh, why? Cause it flooded all our lands. Uh, no, it's not. Although the energy coming out of it is hydroelectric, the concrete going in to make that dam, the, territory that it floods 
these are things that you overlook, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's frustrating with, you know, there's so many different arguments that people tend to overlook um, when, when they make the arguments about Bitcoin's energy usage. One energy um, potential, like a potential energy source for mining Bitcoin that's actually being talked about a lot right now is the geothermal with volcano mining. So exciting, so and, exciting. Actually, I want to give you some credit because you called this on a podcast a little over a month ago. Um, you mentioned that it hadn't really been tapped into yet. So if you want to, do you have any thoughts on that? And you want to touch on that a little bit for us? Uh, quite honestly, no. You know why? Because I'm no expert. And uh, all I will say, it's really exciting. Um, if you saw that picture in El Salvador where there's this uh, vent that's basically throwing out steam like a, uh, a kettle on your stove when it boils, uh, well, this, the water is being heated by the, uh, the volcano um, and it's pu pushing out 95 megawatts of, of, of power. Uh, 95 megawatts is, is a big amount of electricity that can be used to power an entire data center. Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, let alone a Bitcoin mining farm. Okay, so all of this stuff is awesome. It's... Um, it's uh, engineering, all right? Uh, do I know anything about natural gas? Yes. Do I know anything about wind? A little bit. Do I know anything about geothermal? Zero, except that it looks pretty cool, okay? And we don't have a volcano in Canada. Oh, I better check that. I, it's very interesting. I don't even know if we have a volcano in Canada. We might have one up in the Yukon or something, but uh, we're not really part of that ring of fire um, uh, that... How many volcanoes are there in the world? I think there's over a thousand, right? Uh, and incidentally, the amount of carbon dioxide that it spews into the atmosphere by uh, by all of those volcanoes, okay? Uh, and volcanoes aren't an evil thing. They actually exist on Earth. Is so much higher than all of the carbon emissions that humans produce. It's not even funny. So we're bending over backwards. We're never going to control carbon dioxide, you knuckleheads. The volcanoes control carbon dioxide. All right. And again, we'll just leave it there. Uh, it's really sad when you get these narratives that are very ill-informed. You will never control carbon on this planet because the volcanoes control it. Okay. They're way bigger than we are. There's one thing that's pretty interesting about it. So um, the El Salvadorian president, you know, he's been pushing the volcano mining uh, initiative in the country because one thing that he talked about was they have the geothermal energy sources there but they're losing about 50% of their energy before it gets to the people of El Salvador. To so you know why that is, right? Because yeah. So like, you know, those, those high tension wires you see when um, <clears throat> you have the energy source way in Northern Ontario, if it's in the case of hydroelectric, or if you have it at a volcano, well, people correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's that many people that live near a volcano, right? It's probably not the smartest place in the world to live or is right next to a volcano. But if you're producing the power there, it's, it's inefficient to transfer electricity more than, you know, a couple of thousand kilometers over high tension wires. Um, so yeah, it's, there he goes. I believe that's what he would be talking about. I'm not certain. Again, he's using the geothermal component of the, uh, of the volcano. He's not up there capturing uh, carbon at the, at the top of the volcano and running a turbine based off of the carbon at the top of the volcano. All right. Um, yeah, no, they're just getting the water. It's a pipe that's in the, in the ground that gets heated by uh, the lava that's close enough to the, uh, to the uh, a, a vent, uh, you know, um, 
again, I don't, again, I better be careful. I don't know anything about geothermal energy, except it is absolutely a very cool way. Uh, if you want to get really into the most, the, the, the perfect way is uh, nuclear. Uh, so all everyone we're doing right now is saying, oh, nuclear is horrible, nuclear is horrible. Well, in fact, it is actually the cleanest and the most efficient way of generating electricity. And if we ever get into something called small modular reactors, these are nuclear reactors that can be uh, essentially transported to different parts of the world and run, uh, you know, at, at a very small portion of what the big uh, can do reactors do and everything. So <clears throat> My hearing's coming out, and you uh, listen to some uh, stranded engineer. But uh, these are exciting things. And this, if you can create a revenue stream using some of these stranded energy resources that we have in the world, like volcanic energy, like a waterfall in a forest that is so far from uh, any community that it wouldn't be possible to transport that energy that's created at that waterfall but what if you're mining bitcoin there and using a link to the starlink system to connect yourself to the internet and you're creating revenue from an otherwise wasted source of energy tidal energy is the same thing like you know in one within three hours of any given day there's more solar energy that hits the earth than one year's worth of energy required by the earth. So if we could ever get that in, you know, harness that energy, like the, the numbers are staggering. You got to focus on the, you know, on the realities of it and not listen to politicians that really, you know, they, they might own, or they might be uh, lobbied by the wind energy group or something like that. You know, you never know what's going on. So why is it that using more energy is good? In the case of Bitcoin, using more energy is good because it makes it means the system or the, the the network, the world's strongest computer network, is even stronger. Uh, using energy is good for humans. Why? Every single advancement in human productivity has been accompanied with an increase in energy efficiency. So, if you just think of you know <clears throat> over human civilization, when we learn how to use energy better. We tend to have an increase in our standard of living driven by productivity. You know, start with the start with the Stone Age and the invention of fire. Do you think that was a pretty good productivity improving uh, enhancement where you could make a campfire and keep yourself warm? Well, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about these days. We're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, things like geothermal energy, things like solar energy, natural gas, using it properly, capturing the carbon, nuclear energy I talked about. All of these things shouldn't be feared. They should, should be embraced. So do you think in that realm that Bitcoin's energy usage could actually help to push us forward? I 100% do. Um, if, if Bitcoin is the consumer, the marginal consumer of energy, and it does over time increase in value, which I think will happen. Bitcoin, uh, higher Bitcoin prices leads to higher prices that can be paid for energy, higher prices that can be paid for energy. And I'm talking off grid prices, not grid prices, 
will lead to better use of energy resources and perhaps may even get to the point where wind farms can produce energy at a rate that makes them profitable on a true return on capital invested basis. Right now, all wind farms are generally subsidized and you know subsidies tend to lead to uh, misallocation of capital. Uh, but over time, if you can get to that 22 cent per kilowatt hour price that wind farms generally require to, uh, <clears throat> to produce uh, electricity and Bitcoin's what drives it there, then that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to think about the future implications that Bitcoin mining can have on us as a so, society. Yeah, and I, if, if I may, <clears throat> I'm not an expert, but there aren't that many experts in Bitcoin mining, truthfully. Uh, we are, our, our company is an expert in energy, and it's all about your energy input costs. Uh, Bitcoin miners, is, it's a bit of a tough uh a tough business because you don't always control your energy input costs and you don't control your revenue line because Bitcoin price can go up and down as we've seen or energy prices, you know, you might sign a horrible contract that you can be interrupted at any point in time and not even realize the implications of the contract you've signed. So, you know, Bitcoin, the beauty of Bitcoin is in its use cases like El Salvador embracing it so that their citizens can send money back to the United States, excuse me, back from United States to El Salvador in the form of remittances and not lose about that 20% fee that the transfer agents like Western Union generally rape the, the citizens of El Salvador. So that's the use case. It needs to be supported by Bitcoiners who have that sort of electricity Salvador circular. It's beautiful. And that president is one smart cookie. Um, I love his vision. And he's not going to be the first one. Uh, I'm talking to actually some fairly in, in, pretty interesting leaders of various other countries, economically underprivileged country generally. We think of things side of the box that Canadians and uh, Americans certainly don't generally wrestle with on a daily basis, like some of these other lesser developed uh, countries around the world. Definitely. If you can, to some extent, what, what kind of conversations, I, I know there's probably some sense of um, information in there, but what kind of conversations are you having with the, with these leaders? Uh, it's going to be tough for me to answer that. How about this? Um, they have done their homework they realize that they are captive to a system that generally disadvantages uh, their country if they use, like in the case of El Salvador, they use the US dollar, uh, but they don't have a central bank that can control that. And not that I'm saying a central bank is a good thing, but they've totally lost control <clears throat> of their own monetary system because they were based on the US. Um, Bitcoin in El Salvador will allow them to, uh, to be uh, reliant on a decentralized system, no central bank, uh, a global standard. Uh, so El Salvador will be the, um, you know, they'll be the icebreaker, but then there's going to be other smaller countries or in some cases, bigger countries very quickly that uh, want to follow that model. So uh, I'll just say this, uh, I'm amazed at how the countries have leapfrogged 
the corporations like Micro, Michael Saylor's MicroStrategy, and all of a sudden the narrative is now up at the <clears throat> the use case of an entire population. It's a thing of beauty. I was in Miami uh, a week and a half ago or a week and a bit ago, and uh, I had never seen such energy amongst the small kids, uh, you know, small kids, <laughs> the younger kids than me. I'll just say I got an email uh, within the last two days about what some of the things that are happening in Guatemala that I happened to call out on stage that morning before Jack Mahler's made his announcement about El Salvador at four o'clock in the afternoon. I just happened to mention Guatemala and some of the young men that I had met from Guatemala that are trying to form something called Bitcoin Lake, which is based on the Bitcoin beach ecosystem that was developed in Guatemala, excuse me, in, in El Salvador to start the Jack Mahler's revolutionized these kids wanted to do the same thing in Bitcoin Lake in Guatemala around this lake called Lake Atatila, I think it's called. They wanted to have the same concept. And believe me, when the president of El Salvador made their announcement, all of a sudden they went front and center in Guatemala. Like people are like, wow, you know, and think about this, right? If you're the CEO of a company, not a country, but just think of a company and you compete in a various industry and one of your competitors just makes an announcement like this, you better start doing some homework on it. You know, you may think the guy's wrong, but you better formulate your thesis as to why he's wrong and not just close your eyes and say, oh, it'll never happen. It'll never catch on because history is full of, you know, Kodak deliver, uh, developed the digital film, right? You knew that Kodak developed a digital camera, but didn't want to develop it because it would never catch on. Analog film was always going to be the standard. And Kodak went bankrupt. Okay. Like don't put your head in the sand because you think your technology is, uh, you know, infallible and look, you know, so Kodak could have been Apple. Uh, they had the digital camera. Uh, well, no, they weren't. And that's just, too bad for Kodak because Rochester, New York suffered when Kodak uh, went from being one of the most important. I think Kodak was in the Dow. I might not, I may be wrong about that, but it doesn't matter. They, they went bankrupt and it's because they stuck with analog when the world went digital. So what do you think that means for the G7 nations, the G20 nations, the, because clearly the, the smaller nations are going to adopt Bitcoin first um, because the bigger nations have, like you mentioned, they have a more quote unquote. Not if I can currency. help it. Okay. Not if I, I mean, can I help hope, it. I hope so, but so like, what, what, Alberta, do you, what do you see for the, for the bigger nations to come? So let, let me just talk about my home nation. First of all, Canada is a, a bit of a basket case right now. Our leader is a, our leader is what? I got to be careful what I say. Our leader is more concerned about being an actor on the global G7 stage than he is about managing Canada based on capitalist principles uh, that got us to where we are to be lucky enough to be uh, a very free and uh, bordering country of uh, the US. So um, there's a lot of, you know, the world has started to uh, lean very left um, and our leader has leaned further left than most. He printed more money than any other G7 nation. We're in danger of losing that status. I just have to say that because it's the truth. Our credit default swap rate in Canada is reflective of a single A rated 
sovereign credit, even though we have a coveted AAA credit rating, the market's telling us we're not even close to being a AAA rated credit. And much like I lived through the financial crisis in 2008, where credit ratings of AAA were one of the biggest problems of the market because they weren't even close to being true AAA risk. Well, Canada's exhibiting some of those stresses right now. So we are a privileged nation, but if you're, if you're like a Kodak and you don't start thinking about, you know, your competitiveness going forward, uh, you're in danger of losing uh, uh, that privileged status. So what do we have in Canada? We have a ton of natural gas resources. Uh, a, a, a province like Alberta, if they embraced, you don't have to have all of Canada embrace Bitcoin, but what if Alberta did? And what if the Alberta economy made a very concerted effort to <clears throat> understand Bitcoin, uh, bring Bitcoin into the into their business, uh, whether you're an energy company that has extra uh, energy resources that aren't being efficiently used. Uh, it's no different than El Salvador. I'm 100% certain Alberta's GDP is greater than El Salvador's. I don't have those numbers in front of me. When, you know, I'm just thinking out loud in my head, but I bet you if we checked right now on the, uh, on the uh, internet, I think that El Salvador's GDP was what? Was something like- 24 seven, billion, I thought. 24 right. billion. Okay, so I'm 100% certain that Alberta's is bigger than- uh, No, I can't be. You're never 100% certain. I'm highly confident that Alberta's GDP is greater than uh, El Salvador's. Um, because Canada's GDP is right up around, well, to make the math easy, I guess it's a couple of trillion. So yeah, for sure, Alberta's way bigger than that. Point is, Alberta would be wise to uh, to uh, embrace potentially Bitcoin due to their energy uh, uh, prowess. What energy does Alberta have? That, what energy prowess does Alberta have that you could see it being beneficial? Oh, 100% natural gas. Okay. So we have, uh, we have some extremely valuable and quality natural gas wells. Um, we have a TransCanada pipeline that goes from coast to coast carrying valuable natural gas that, uh, you know, uh, it's just an infrastructure that's been developed already. And it's my belief over time that energy will be priced in Bitcoin. Digital energy for natural gas energy or natural resource energy makes sense to me as an engineer. When that happens, the US dollar will lose reserve asset status, not reserve currency status, but reserve asset status. People that have the vision that that could happen and have accumulated uh, on a bunch of Bitcoin, whether you're an individual or a corporation or a country, or uh, I, I jumped too high, individual, a corporation, a province or a country, you will be rewarded. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? Like as it becomes the reserve asset, um, when it when energy is priced in Bitcoin, because currently it's priced in the dollar. US dollars, to, yeah. Due to the petrodollar system. Um, could you talk a little bit about like what the petrodollar is and kind of how that will be reflected when Bitcoin starts to take over that system? Yeah, great question. Um, my understanding is that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia signed a petrodollar agreement that in return for the U.S. Protect, to pro protecting the kingdom of Saudi Arabia with military force, 
Saudi Arabia would agree to price their product in US dollars. Now, Russia <clears throat> may not be that happy about that and might say, dang it, like the US dollar is a shit coin. So I don't want to have my energy, valuable natural energy uh, being priced and me giving away valuable natural energy or selling valuable natural energy for US dollar shit coin. Uh, why don't I start taking Bitcoin, digital energy for natural energy? Logical progression in my mind. And there's plenty of other countries that may start thinking along those same lines. And then maybe there's no choice. Much like Brent, North Sea Brent oil is priced differently than uh, Henry Hub, uh, West Texas Intermediate, WTI, right? It's It's just different markets, different strokes for different folks. It's only a unit of account, but more importantly, it will become a reserve asset. Whereas I'm certain that Russia doesn't want to own US treasuries. Uh, they'd be smarter to own Bitcoin. And it's just a natural process of taking money into their country for the energy that they're exporting from their country, taking that purest form of monetary energy, Bitcoin, as payment for their natural resource. So, you know, everything, it's an evolution, not a revolution, but there's certain revolutionary uh, uh, components to it. Uh, it's only 12 years old. Let's give it a chance. But I think within my lifetime, we may well see uh, energy being priced in Bitcoin. Would be a pretty exciting development. Um, to, the to price of Bitcoin that. right now is very, very cheap, in my opinion. When that happens, my goodness, the price could explode. Um, <clears throat> I think the price of Bitcoin has extreme upside from here, whether or not that happens. Um, and that's why everything's a probability analysis. Is your dog all right? He's having a bad dream. Oh, come on. That's crazy. Maybe maybe he's living the the fiat moment right there. That's your your poor <laughs> puppy is is dreaming about fiat right now. So uh, two very uh, very uh, you know timely interventions by your your dog. You you brought it up both times, so I'm, I can't edit it out. You no, know, you can't. We'll, we'll, you we'll can't. have to leave leave Brody in the background sure. rolling. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it'll definitely be a pretty crazy change that will happen. <laughs> one, just in the world, but then two. To what the price that we see on the day-to-day -day basis don't um, overthink this okay eric i mean this is the most important thing i can tell you guys uh it's a rounding error the price right now <clears throat> i i mentioned that i'd written this paper where i i value it based on credit default swap rates for sovereign nations i don't want to get too granular with you on that basis but uh, I think Bitcoin is default insurance on uh, on fiat currencies right now is worth about 150,000 bucks a Bitcoin US right now. That's its intrinsic value. And that price will increase as the credit default swap spreads increase as risks of sovereign nations defaulting increases. But the really exciting part is where it goes if it does uh, really get uh, embraced by various countries and the supply and demand uh, component. Uh, millions of dollars of Bitcoin is possible. It's not 100% certainty, but nor is it 0% uh, chance. You always have to do your uh, expected value calculations. So from the expected value calculations that you've seen, have you ever seen uh, opportunity like this? That's why I say, that's why I say this is the best investment opportunity I've ever seen in 30 years. It's not a guarantee. Okay. I'm not 
telling you that it's 100% certain. I'm just telling you, if you do your mathematics, if you're at a craps table, it's like you're sitting on a, you know, you're sitting on a pretty good hand. You could still be a, you know, you, you still could muddle it up by being not betting properly or selling some or not laying your cards proper in proper succession or getting bluffed out by someone else on the other side because they think you think they're smarter than you are. Um, yeah, you got to play risk and return. But as it stands now, it is still the best asymmetric investment that I've ever seen in 30 years. Exciting times ahead for sure. Um, one thing that you just mentioned is, you know, as things could heat up with sovereign nations um, and the credit default swaps, if if nations start defaulting, right. what what does that look like? And what, what do you foresee coming on that side? Well, again, you just replay the... Um, the great financial crisis where, where it was all with, you know, subprime mortgages and, and, and mortgage structures, credit structures, uh, just start playing it with countries, you know, Lehman brothers and Bear Stearns turns into Canada, God forbid. And uh, Canada. And so Canada hopefully will be the Bear Stearns and Lehman brothers would be, I don't know. Uh, it's going to be difficult for me to pick a country because I don't want to see one of them that happen, but you know, the point is uh, there are G7 countries that are, ex excuse me, G20 countries that are experiencing some financial distress right now. Turkey, for example, Argentina, they've defaulted three times in my lifetime. Argentina has. Uh, are you going to tell me it's not a possibility that they'll ha it'll happen again? <laughs> um, so what happens then is you have this thing called contagion, where if Canada were to get into big trouble, don't you think there'd be some impact on the United States, given that we are such an important trading partner? We're your second largest trading partner. And if something happened to us, uh, there'd be impacts, uh, trickle down impacts, certainly to the United States. So don't think that the United States would be free and clear. <clears throat> That's what happens in credit markets is a contagion, uh, a lack of confidence uh, it, uh, explodes over into other markets. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm an emerging market debt trader and I need to hedge. So why don't you sell some high yield? And the high yield guys like I'm getting crushed because of emerging markets. So I'm going to sell something and they sell investment grade debt. And all of a sudden it's a cascade of contagion and the same thing can happen in countries. Come on. Yeah. It's a pretty eye opening to start to think about where it could go. Do you, do you see a world where the transition to a, like a Bitcoin standard per se could happen without Say the U.S. defaulting or Canada defaulting is there a possibility? Oh, yeah. Is there oh, yeah. a route no, it better happen? No, it better happen. That's what I'm hoping happens. I hope there's two parallel systems that exist for a long time. <clears throat> Nick Zabo uh, said this at the Bitcoin conference in Miami very eloquently. He goes, "Treat fiat as your checking account, and treat Bitcoin as your savings account." Fiat currencies are okay for certain things, international trade. Yeah, they're good, but don't store your value in them because they're guaranteed to go down in value. That's just what's happened when we've accumulated the big debt uh, positions that we have. Again, it's only mathematics. Um, so use Bitcoin as your savings account and use fiat currencies as your checking account. And most smart people don't store their value in their checking account. Yeah, exactly. Use the, use the money or put the money that you need on the short term basis in your fiat and your checking and then the money uh -huh. that you can can afford to sit on into your savings or your Bitcoin. Correct. So what what would that look like in a world where, say, Canada or the U.S. defaulted? What, what would happen? Oh, um, there are certain people out there that are, that are hoping for that. Um, 
I think there's a, a higher and increasingly higher chance every day that something does break, but it's not something that I want to happen. I think there would be extreme hardship up and down the, uh, the, I, I think the price, uh, the price of Bitcoin <clears throat> would get crushed in the short term, just because again, what happens, people sell what they, they can, they need to, they're going to put some short-term money. If they want that short-term money to be a bigger collection, they might sell their winners like Bitcoin. Um, but most importantly, it'll just mean a collapse of confidence in the capitalist system. I mean, we might go full on social, uh, you know, we got, we get, I'm, I'm, um, an owner of a, a couple of small businesses that right now it's, it's actually really tough to get qualified workers or even, ex, uh, old, some of our old employees who'd rather sit in home, sit at home and collect, uh, these juicy unemployment checks and come back and work for us. And, you know, th these are the types of behavior that could uh, accelerate the, uh, you know, the privilege, the uh, entitlement, entitled nature of the, well, I'm a, I'm a citizen of Canada, therefore I should get all this stuff for free. Well, you can't print yourself to prosperity and you actually need to do some work to earn money. That's what money is. It, it's energy that you get paid uh, for your work energy, you get monetary energy, uh, that monetary energy is better stored in Bitcoin than it is in fiat currency. I just go back that 25 or 30 years when I was working on roofs as a summer job, I guarantee you that if on a good day, I think I might've earned 40 bucks in a given day in 1984, uh, the value of that 40 bucks right now to me is so much less than the energy that I expended on the hot roof in 1984. But the value of the energy went into the house and the value of the house went up. The loser's me, because if I had stored my energy in fiat, that $40 that I earned uh, was probably worth about 16, not, not even $16 right now. Uh, it's, that's what happens. Yeah, it makes it tough to, to plan long term when your money is constantly being debased and in yeah, yeah, Adam, exactly. So, where do you see it going? So, or I guess actually a different question. You just touched on you know the socialist side of our countries right now and kind of the the fight against between socialism and capitalism and kind of where it goes. Okay, is is capitalism the the evil here? Because it seems to be a lot of people in my generation kind of think that, you know, the capitalistic mentality is a negative in a, a net negative to society. When I personally see it as a net positive society because it encourages taking risks and growth. Exactly. So, yeah. so what do you what, what do you see between those those two systems? I don't know. I don't want hate mail, but uh, honestly, if you actually believe, uh, so there's a, a great uh, line that I've heard. Uh, if you're not a socialist when you're in university, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a capitalist, by the time you turn 35, you don't have a brain, right? I'm not sure if you guys have heard that uh, expression, but it certainly seems like some of the crap that the kids are learning in university these days is... Uh, is very biased to the left, leftward leaning. I'm a capitalist with a heart. Okay, I I, I want to help the less privileged, um, but I don't want to do it when it's forced out of me. Uh, I want to do it because it's the right thing to do. Uh, I have a big problem with uh, 
socialism or communism, as Mar Margaret Thatcher said, uh, communism only works until you run out of other people's money. Uh, I, I believe that the best model there is, is capitalism. Now it's not perfect, uh, but it's better in my mind than the alternatives. And I think the history of the USA and Canada has proven that to be the case. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese government may, may take the longer view and say, well, the experiment's not over yet, but uh, let's just say that that experiment has run a long time in China and there's certainly some problems over there. Um, you know, it's, it's tough. Uh, I, uh, not, I'm not a Keynesian. Uh, I think that's a broken economic model. Uh, I am a Austrian economics type of guy. Uh, primarily, though, I'm a risk, I'm a risk trader. Uh, I will just tell you that uh, everything priced in an open market tends to make better solution or better economic solutions than things that are regulated or, uh, or centrally planned. Uh, you know, why is it that we have some of the greatest corporations in the world in North America? Well, because, you know, capital, the creative destruction nature of capitalism, um, Kodak, it was a shame they didn't develop the digital camera, but Apple did, you know what I mean? Like, or took the digital camera and brought it mainstream. Um, <clears throat> hey, <laughs> That's what capitalism is, you know? You take your risks. If you fail, you pay the penalty. You don't get rescued by crony capitalism like Wall Street bankers. You pay the freight. And when you succeed, you reap the rewards. And that's sort of the model that I live by. Couldn't agree more. I think you put that pretty, pretty well. Um, so with the socialism mindset or... I wouldn't call it fully there yet, but you know, kind of the path that our our two nations are headed um, with printing money. And can that can we stop printing money and no. keep the system alive? Uh, yes, uh, no. So we can stop. We can continue printing money and keep capitalism alive, although it's more uh, difficult because people feel the entitlements become. Hey, well, why pay taxes if you can just print money? And there's something to be said about that, right? Like, think about that for a sec. Why do we pay taxes if you can just print money? Um, the It's a certainty that money printing has to continue. Our debt, D-E-B-T, spiral has grown so big that the only way that the spiral can continue without exploding is by continuing to print money. So, you cannot stop printing money. That is the certainty. That, uh, therefore, um, fiat currencies will continue to debase. That is also a certainty. Mathematics, I mean, it's not that hard. Uh, it's mathematically a certainty. But capitalism can be rescued. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's a fine line between the two. So again, I'm a capitalist with a heart. Uh, do not store your hard earned energy, work energy that's being paid in a form of money in a fiat currency. That's a horrible trade. You can store it in other hard assets, real estate prices. You may think you're making a killing on your, on your house, but you're not. It's only the unit of account, the US dollar that's going down in price. So it takes more of those phony dollars to buy one hard asset called the house than it did before. 
So maybe you're actually not making money on your house because if you measured your house price in gold, you would realize that you have not made any money on your house. The same thing about equities. If you measured equities in the price of gold, you have not made any money on equities. And Bitcoin, it'll be the same thing. Okay. When it's that, when Bitcoin is the unit of account, you'll realize there's a lot of other things that you thought you were making money on or making returns on that you actually weren't. It's just that your, your unit of account was being debased. Yeah, when you start dividing your, yeah. if you start basically using your denominator as Bitcoin um, and you start looking back through your last year of trades and you see that everything else is just inflating oh, yeah. away because of the US dollar. It's, uh -huh. it's a, once you start, once you get that deep down the rabbit hole, it's a pretty um, eye-opening experience to start looking at everything else in, in that light. So and one it's, thing- it's, it's, Sorry, it's, it's like a, it's a change in culture almost. So, so you're right. <clears throat> Definitely, because you have to completely shift your mindset of something uh -huh. you've been trained your whole life. Um, so one thing that you just touched on there, um, and this is probably like one of the last two questions, sure. is we can't quit printing um, because the our debt to GDP ratio. Um, that is and, correct, yeah. And so I know you've talked about it a little bit before about basically the interest on our debt is too high to quit printing. Otherwise, we're going to default on the debt. Is that, I mean, I think that's kind of a general- A little overview. bit, yeah. We don't even have to go to default. It's basically you need to print to solve the closed loop of having a debt burden that is- uh, producing an interest expense each year. And if you don't pay that with interest expense, if you accrue that interest expense, your debt balloon just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But if you try and pay that interest expense to keep the balloon a certain size, your GDP has to grow at a rate that's not sustainable, in my opinion. In other words, Right now, total global debt to GDP is four times. You have four times more global debt than you have gross domestic product. Gross domestic product is your tax base. If an average coupon on that debt, I throw out frequently 3% is your coupon. I think low that's debt on everything. Um, consumer debt, uh, government debt, provincial, state, corporate, high yield. That average coupon of 3% means that your numerator is growing at a 12% rate relative to your denominator, which means your denominator needs to grow at 12% just to keep pace with your numerator. I don't think global economies are going to grow at 12% forever just to keep pace with your interest burden on your numerator. And that doesn't even include all the recent, you know, the, 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 the most recent four, five, six trillion dollar budgets that are, uh, being advanced by various nations around the world. Like it's, it's, it's again, it's only math. I, I, I don't want to say it's over, but darn, it's not uh, looking that, that great. Okay. And the only thing that solves that debt loop is printing money. It makes it tough to keep up with, uh, when you're dead, when you have so much debt and then it's growing at mm -hmm. a certain percent, you know, 3% or whatever percent it is growing at, it's just an impossible. Well, again, cause uh, it's a multiple, there's a four times multiple on that interest rate because it's four times bigger than your tax base. And you'll say, Oh, it's easy. We'll just raise taxes. No, 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 you won't. Because it, we're at the point of diminishing marginal returns right now. If you increase taxes, what you see is more of the economy moves underground and basically skips or 
you know, uh, becomes an underground economy that avoids the taxation. So there's plenty of examples in history of where you raise tax rates, but your actual tax revenues decrease because more of the economy goes underground. Yeah, pretty, pretty tough loop to get out of it at this point. And, you know, hopefully mm -hmm. um, our government and the people at the higher levels can navigate it properly, because like you said, it's like we don't want to see these countries default. Right. Because it would have some pretty drastic implications on. Yeah, I got all three kids. People. I got three kids. I don't I do not want to see that happen. Exactly. So one final question before we sure. wrap up today. If you had an opportunity to have dinner with anyone oh. dead or alive. OK. And let's we're going to assume that they, you know, they understand what the Internet it is. OK. And you had the opportunity to explain what Bitcoin is to them and basically like what you could see it doing for our world and for money, for humanity. So okay. you could have a two hour conversation about Bitcoin with anybody. Okay. Who would that be and why? Wow. So this is going to sound pretty goofy. It would be Connor McDavid. Do you know who he is? I do not. Connor McDavid is a 1997 hockey player that's lit the NHL on fire. He plays for the Edmonton Oilers. He actually, my son has played hockey with him. I would love to orange pill Connor because he can have such an impact on Canadian kids embracing Bitcoin just because of who he is. And, you know, I mean, it sounds goofy because my son is probably going to say, dad, why did you ever say this on a podcast? Because Connor is one of my son's not good friends, but you know, my son knows quite a few NHLers. My son played some pretty intense hockey uh, against McDavid and with him in a, for a short period of time. But point being, you have these celebrities that can influence people so much these days, uh, much like Russell Okung, the NF NFL offensive lineman who is being paid in Bitcoin. I mean, these are beautiful things. Uh, so if I could orange pill Connor so that he would have such an impact on young Can Canadians, 14, 13, 12 year old kids that started saving in Bitcoin, just because it's easy to do on your wallet and it's, it's really neat, teaches kids about money. I would try and uh, sit down with, uh, with Connor and uh, and uh, tell him look uh not only should you be getting a portion of your nhl salary in bitcoin and it's a big salary okay so you might as well take a little bit of it uh you could have such a massive impact on uh canadian kids and actually any kids in the world lots of u.s kids love hockey i know it's not your number one sport but uh Crazy stat here, just because the U.S. is 10 times bigger than Canada, did you know there's more kids playing minor hockey in the United States than there is in Canada? Like, this is just the law of big numbers, okay? And I'm pretty sure a lot of those kids know who Connor McDavid is in the United States as well. And it would be a really cool thing. So McDavid got 100 points this year in a very difficult NHL season. He's always been the most talented hockey player I've ever seen in my life. Um, and he continues to do it at the highest levels. And if you had an endorsement of Bitcoin coming out of Connor McDavid, I think he could massively change a lot of lives for Canadian kids. And by the same token, I'm not saying Connor takes all his NHL salary in Bitcoin. And I'm not saying he tells kids to put all of their piggy banks in Bitcoin, but the piggy bank holding a bunch of quarters and dollars and everything is a losing investment. Uh, fiat dollars. But if you have a piggy bank on your phone that stores Bitcoin, I think the outcome could be really, really important for the future of our kids.
Yeah, get Connor and get these kids start stacking some sats. And- That's right, man. And how about a, a basketball player like that guy that uh, went to Gonzaga? We talked about him, Kelly something. He was uh, a Canadian. He sort of looks like you. He had he's a white guy with long hair. He had a ponytail. Oh, Kelly, Kelly Olenek. Yeah, yeah. He was from Canada. Like maybe yep. orange, orange pill him. You orange pill him. I'll try and orange pill McDavid and together we'll get, uh, you know, the famous athletes that are doing, uh, <clears throat> providing good solid and again this is not investment advice but by the same token yeah it's investment advice okay how about this i'll, I'll reach out to kelly you reach out to connor we'll have a, a four-way zoom chat we'll sit down and i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to do this with my i, I guarantee my son is gonna uh you know uh go, go ballistic on me here but uh, the point is this it was a great question and uh and uh, i honestly hope that uh you know more athletes and more celebrities study Bitcoin and then realize what it can do for future generations. We are, my generation anyway, the boomer generation is one of the most selfish generations that uh, has ever been produced. We've pulled forward so much prosperity for our benefit to the expense of our children. Uh, I just want to try and do something to uh, correct that uh, uh, reality. Awesome. That sounds like a, a great mission to, to have in your retirement and, you know, help help push forward adoption through uh, multiple different facets and people. So, Greg, I really appreciate your time. Um, tell the people where they can find you at and I'll have links to all your stuff in the show notes. Oh, uh, you're the best. Uh, so just I don't know. Just find me on on Twitter. I guess uh, I found the power of Twitter. <laughs> Some so it, I'm not going to tell you how many followers I have, and it's not really. It's pretty minuscule compared to what McDavid. I don't know how many McDavid has, but I 100% certain he has, and I am 100% certain he has way more than I do. Um, I'll look that up after. Uh, so find me on Twitter. Twitter's a beautiful platform. It's freedom of speech. Oh, mostly freedom of speech. There's some. Uh, <laughs> there's times that sometimes it gets uh, censored, but. Uh, for me anyway, uh, it's a beautiful platform. My handle is at FOSS, F-O-S-S, Greg, G-R-E-G, FOSS, F-O-S-S. So at FOSS, Greg FOSS. Uh, I primarily only tweet about uh, Bitcoin, but uh, forgive me if I tweet a little bit about the Montreal Canadiens being one of the uh, final four contestants in uh, in this year's Stanley Cup, because Montreal is my hometown. And uh as they say, listen, uh, Montreal's won 24 Stanley Cups. It's uh, always the most difficult to win the 25th, okay? And I, I, I use that as a jab at all other uh, NHL teams that are not even close to how many Montreal's won. Uh, but that's a little bit dated as well. We last lost, uh, last won our last Stanley Cup in 1993. So we're due, we're due for a victory. It's not going to be easy, but... Uh, and. Do you have a young kid in the background there? Or is that your dog again? That That's actually a siren. Oh, okay, um, okay. I'm up the street from a, a fire okay. station. All right. Well, um, let's sign off on the, on the, on the fire station, uh, the, the notes that they, this is not a drill, ladies and gentlemen, this is really important for all our kids. Okay. Um, I'm not hundred percent certain, but by the same token, I have never seen a better risk adjusted investment opportunity uh, based on the upside versus the downside of Bitcoin from these prices. Wonderful, Greg. Well, really appreciate your time today. Been great chatting with you. Look forward to doing it again in the future. And maybe when uh, Connor and Kelly are on the phone with us. Wouldn't that be so cool? And good luck on your podcast. It was a pleasure to be your eighth, uh, around your eighth. I don't know if you had multiple guests on any of your other uh, shows, but uh, if I'm number eight, uh, I, I'm, I'm very proud to be here. So uh, thanks for having me. Okay. Greatly appreciate it, sir. I'll, we'll chat soon. Okay. 
What a great conversation with Greg today. He has a ridiculous amount of experience and it's always incredible to learn from someone like him. Greg, thank you again. It was an absolute pleasure. I have some very exciting guests lined up for the coming weeks, so get ready for some more great episodes here shortly. I'm also headed down to Austin this weekend and have a chance to swing into the June BitDevs meetup, so I'm definitely looking forward to meeting some other Bitcoiners in the flesh. I would greatly appreciate if you would leave me a rating and review of my show, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you're willing to take the time. And subscribing to the show is a bonus as well. Thank you very much for tuning in today, and I can't wait for the next one. Take us away, bro.